When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Please pray with me. Dear Lord in heaven, we ask you to be here in this place with us this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here with us. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Homiletics is the class in seminary in which you're taught the art of preaching. It's probably the class that people not only look forward to the most, but are also probably most afraid of. Most people, when they take the homiletics class, haven't really had much experience standing up in front of people and talking, and probably have the idea in their minds that this skill is what's going to make or break their whole ministry. Am I going to be a good preacher or not? And so the homiletics professor becomes a person of almost mythical importance, like the defense against the dark arts teacher at Hogwarts or Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society. Everything rides, it seems, on this class. This is the man who's going to give you the tools you need to succeed in ministry in the church. He will take you under his wing, show you the ropes, help you understand what to do and what not to do, how to communicate the good news of the gospel to people, and to impart the confidence of the Holy Spirit to you, the student, enabling you to have a fruitful preaching ministry. At least that's the kind of person you hope to have as a homiletics professor. I had a mime. That's not a joke. I had a mime as my homiletics professor. The man tasked with teaching me to preach was a professional mime. And I worked that information into the sermon every couple of years as a shield against criticism. <laughs> oh, you have a problem with the sermon? It's not my fault. My teacher was a mime. Now, right or wrong, I don't remember a whole lot from that preaching class other than doing breathing exercises and having to pretend that I was in an invisible box. <laughs> and yes, that also really happened. I had to pretend in seminary that I was in an invisible box. I suppose I do remember being criticized once during a classroom sermon for putting my hands in my pockets which, as it turns out, is not much of an issue these days. Um, but there is preaching advice that I remember. It just didn't come from the mime. And one of the overriding pieces of advice about preaching that I do remember from my time in seminary actually came from one of my other professors. And this guy said that the most important part of the sermon is the illustrations, the stories and examples that you use to connect the congregation to the message being preached. Now, I'm pretty sure I don't agree that they're the most important thing. This professor of mine was prone to overstatement, but I do think that illustrations are important. 
and that it can sometimes take some time to come up with good ones for a sermon. There isn't always a perfect movie example that jumps immediately to mind. You know, sometimes I'll spend hours just trying to wrap my mind around illustrating what I want to say. But this week, the Bible does all of the illustrating work for me. The reading we have before us this morning from Genesis 15 is a story, but it is also all by itself an illustration. It's kind of like the story we had last week of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, a story operating on two levels. On one level, this in Genesis 15 is the narrative of God's covenant signing ceremony with Abram. But on another level, it is a powerful illustration of God's grace given freely to those who don't deserve it. Now, the setup is simple. God makes Abram, this man who has not yet become Abraham, a promise. But Abram is skeptical. Now, Abram, Abram I'm going to say Abraham and Abram like alternatingly this whole sermon. I'm sorry. Abram has already been told by God that from him will come a great nation and that his descendants will be no more numerous than the stars in the sky. And this, we read, Abram believes. But then God gives him an additional promise. I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And now Abram has a doubt. He says to God, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So the promise sounds great, almost too good to be true, and Abram has doubt. He wants a guarantee. Doesn't this ring true for you? Doesn't this feel like you? We hear the amazing promises of God who allegedly so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we can't help but wonder, can it really be true? How can we know for sure? So God sets out to show us. He knows our doubt and so decides to prove his faithfulness. He knows his promises sound unbelievable, so he turns us into believers. And that's what he does here for Abram. He gives Abram the assurance that he seeks. Now, the way he decides to show Abram this assurance, this weird ceremony that we read about with all these animals sliced in half, seems very strange to us but was in fact a way that covenants were made back then when two parties would enter into certain kinds of covenants. This ceremony is how they ratified it. They'd get a bunch of animals, cut them in half, and lay them out, making a path between them. You know, like you do. <laughs> then each party, each party entering into the covenant would walk between the animals through the blood and the flies and all of that, in effect saying, if I violate this covenant, if I break my word, may I end up like these animals. You can think of it as the ancient version of cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Which, when you think about it, is just as grisly as anything we've got going on here in Genesis. Stick a needle in your eye? Goodness. But anyway, this is the ultimate I promise. The parties 
entering into this covenant are staking their very lives on their faithfulness to it. And that's what makes this covenant between God and Abram so incredible. Such a moving illustration of God's grace. Because when it comes time to ratify the covenant, to sign on the dotted line, God puts Abram to sleep and passes, symbolized by a smoking fire pot and flaming torch, he passes between the animals alone. Take a moment to let the implications of that sink in. God passes between the animals alone. You see what this means. By doing this, by passing between the animals alone, God is completely reorienting the way this sort of covenant is supposed to work. By doing this, God is making a standard promise. If I break my word to you, it's on me. But by passing between the animals alone, he is also making an astounding promise. If you break your word, it's still on me. God promises here to uphold both sides of the deal. He's the only one who passed between the animals. His life is the only life on the line. We live, you and I, in a very two-way world. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You give me mine, I'll give you yours. Relationships are a two-way street. Humans have always lived in this kind of world. That's why covenant ratifying ceremonies like this existed. Two people were meant to walk the path. But not today. Everything is a two-way street except the promises of God. God here is talking about a one-way street. One-sided promises, one-way love. From him to you. His love given to you. His faithfulness given to you. His righteousness given to you. His promise kept. Regardless of what you do. Abram's covenant relationship with God doesn't depend on Abram at all. In fact, Abram is so uninvolved in this deal that he not only does not pass between the divided animals, he's asleep for the whole ceremony. God puts Abram to sleep. And this is the illustration we've been given to help us understand our covenant, our relationship with God. And there is no illustration more passive than this. An unconscious human being receiving the benefits of a one-sided promise from an active and loving God. He is good. We are asleep. And when we awaken, the deal is done. And we are saved. I especially appreciated Rereading this story this week, immediately following, as it does in our lectionary, last week's story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Because that story 
brings into sharp relief just how amazing God's promise here is. Because God can see what's coming. Remember that 77 generation genealogy that Luke traces back from Jesus and his father Joseph all the way to Adam and the Lord God himself tracing the entire history of the nation of Israel? This morning, we're looking at that same history, but from the other side, right? In Luke, we're looking from Jesus back. And here in Genesis 15, we're looking from Abram forward. And the whole power of that temptation story, remember, is that Jesus is going to succeed where Israel failed. Israel, the chosen people of God, was an overwhelmingly sinful nation. They were totally human. They ran after other gods. They built idols and acted just like the surrounding pagan nations. They invited God's righteous judgment. But when that judgment came, they invariably asked God to remember what? Well, they asked God to remember his promise to them through their ancestor, Abram. They asked God again and again to remember this very promise. We know we've been unfaithful, God, but you made us a promise. And this is the making of that promise. Don't forget the nation of Israel might as well be saying through the entirety of the Old Testament. Don't forget that you passed between the animals by yourself. And perhaps most amazingly of all, God, as he's making this one-sided covenant with Abram, putting him to sleep and promising to uphold both sides of the deal, God, who sees everything, can see just how unfaithful his chosen people are going to be. And he makes this promise anyway. This should be and is a profound comfort to us because it answers what I think is one of our most pressing concerns. And that concern can be expressed in four words. What about next time? When we are forgiven, it's those four words that keep us from being too joyful. What about next time? When someone says to you, don't worry about it, or we're good, it's those four words that give you pause. What about next time? What will happen when I mess up again? Will you still forgive me? Will it still be good? Now, this covenant between God and Abram, this one-way covenant with God alone passing between the animals and Abram unconscious off to the side, this covenant forever answers the what about next time question. Because every time there's a next time. And as the people of Israel showed, there is going to be a next time. And a time after that, and a time after that, and so on. Every time there's a next time, we can remind God of his promise. We can always look back on that fire pot that passed between the animals alone. Because that's what this ceremony is all about. God, at the very beginning of his covenant relationship with his people, 
this great nation that he has promised Abram, promises that when, not if, but when they mess it up, he won't. When we mess up, he won't. And a little over 2,000 years later, on the same mountain, he did uphold both sides of the covenant. Because we did mess it up. We do mess it up. We do not love God with our whole hearts, souls, minds, and strength. We do not love our neighbors as ourselves. As the nation of Israel did before us, we run after other gods, notably by deifying ourselves. We have built idols for ourselves. We have acted just like the surrounding pagan nations and invited God's righteous judgment. And yet, God remembers his promise. He remembers the animals cut in half. He remembers the blood. He remembers passing through it all, all by himself. And so he takes that righteous judgment. He gathers it up and he takes it back onto himself. On the cross, at the place of the skull, God's righteous judgment is poured out. But not on the people, you and me, who deserved it. It is poured out on his son, taken back onto himself, God incarnate on earth. And so when that next time comes, when we mess it up again, we have something to cling to. God's promise and the guarantee that we have the cross and the empty tomb. And so we confess again. We'll do it together in just a minute. We confess again. And we hear the absolution, the announcement of our forgiveness again. We recite the creed again, reminding ourselves of what we believe. We reaffirm our faith in the God who made us a promise. We reaffirm our faith in the God who always keeps his promise. This is the good news for you this morning. Completely without your contribution, God in Christ has saved you. It was accomplished 2,000 years ago on a criminal's cross, promised 4,000 years ago on a path between animals cut in half and remains in force today and is sure and certain forever. In and on account of Jesus, God has made you a promise. And by Christ, he has kept it and will keep it always. Amen.